I'm not ever going to say that publishing agreements with a major is a bad thing because sometimes you got to get your foot in the door and you have to be business-minded enough to negotiate properly. But knowing what you're signing and saying, okay, I'm not going to give away five years' worth of music. I'm only going to give away two years' worth of music, and then I'll go back in and renegotiate. You are now listening to the Music Business Streams podcast, brought to you by KDMR Music. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to episode 19 of the Music Business Dreams podcast. I'm your host, Brandon, from KDMR Music, and I'm super excited to have you here. Um, So you just heard a little bit from today's guest. Uh, Her name is Stephanie Hay. She's an entertainment attorney based in Houston, Texas, but we had a great conversation all about what role entertainment attorneys play, especially for independent artists, and why it's so important for you to get one. We also talked about music royalties and all sorts of other things, and you're going to hear from her in just a minute. But first, I've got a quick announcement I want to make. At KDMR Music, we're working to raise the next generation of artists, managers, music industry professionals, and entrepreneurs, and give them all the knowledge they need to succeed in today's industry. If you're listening to this show, I already consider you a part of that movement, but I'd love to make it official. You can do that by becoming a member of the Indie Club. You'll get access to exclusive content, a growing network of artists and professionals, and individualized advice via our forums. And the best part about all of this is it's completely free. Just go to kdmr.us slash Indie Club and request your access today. Let's get back to the show. All right, guys. So today's guest on the Music Business Podcast is the owner and principal attorney of the Hay Law Group, PLLC. She opened her doors in 2014 on a mission to provide professional service to clients in need of representation. Uh, Believing that the practice of law isn't simply a transactional relationship between the attorney and client, uh, our next guest prides herself on fostering relationships with her clients and making them more than just a case number. Now, in addition to being an attorney, she's an adjunct professor at the commercial business, excuse me, commercial music business program at Houston Community College, where she teaches music publishing, survey of the music business, and the legal aspects of entertainment law. So please welcome the next guest to the Music Business Dreams podcast, Miss Stephanie Hay. How are you today, Stephanie? I'm well. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show and uh, give of your time to talk to our audience today. No problem. No problem. All right. So for those who don't know you or aren't familiar with your work, I want to just kind of get um, an introduction from you and understand a little bit more about how you got started. Um. Well, honestly, the choice to practice entertainment law really just becomes a personal thing. And so... When I started or I decided to go to law school, my whole thing was, okay, what do I want to do? What is this, what is this supposed to look like? I come from a communications background. I went to Howard University um, for undergrad, and I knew I wanted to bring in my communications um, knowledge into the law and trying to figure out where that place. I knew also I didn't want to be like a the attorney you see on Law and Order or SVU or something like that, I knew that wasn't my path either. And so it's kind of like, okay, so what exactly can I do that will incorporate the law but not be so um, stark, basically? Because I was doing my research, and I was always interested in entertainment, but 
I can't sing. I'm not a songwriter. I'm not any of those things. So it was one of those things I was like, okay, well, I guess that's not the industry for me. But I realized, you know, I researched that, oh, I could be an entertainment lawyer. And I started doing the research on that, and it just basically took me away. And so from there, that was probably the moment in filling out that law school application that I thought, okay, as I pursue this degree, I know I want to practice in the entertainment field and really help artists do what they need to do to protect themselves. So if I can't sing, at least that will be my way to contribute to the industry. (laughs) Okay, cool. So what is it about the industry and entertainment law that kind of entices you in that way? I think it's the people working with creatives. So I say I'm not a creative, but I know I have a creative spirit. And so to see what the artist can create and what actors can put on screen is very intriguing to me. I told a story that one time I saw um, when Deborah Lee got first got appointed to BET. I remember being in high school and I watched her give her first speech on the BET Awards and I thought, this is the most amazing woman ever. How can I do her job? She is a female that looks just like me and she is running a entertainment company. She's in the business, and she's not doing it, you know, singing or dancing or doing any of those things, but she is a part of the business. And so and seeing that that was what it was, it was the business side of it that intrigued me, but I also got to interact with the entertainers. I got to, you know, assist them in making sure that they had long-term money when it was all said and done with. So, that was what intrigued me. Got you. And so for our listeners, a lot of our audience um, is just starting out making music. You know, they're doing things independently. Um, and they may feel like they don't need an entertainment attorney yet. Can you just explain what an entertainment attorney does and why someone might need one? An entertainment attorney me, handles your contract negotiation, um, they can do rights administration for your copyrights um, and publishing. They can assist in the formation of your business entity. So if you're starting a um, record label, if you're starting a publishing company, it's good to hook up with them in the beginning because in addition to just doing that basic um, paperwork for you, they'll also be able to be there to guide you um, and ask for advice as far as, okay, am I doing this right? What do I need to do? What royalties am I missing out on? Especially in the indie world, I feel like it is a world of many possibilities, but you also have to invest the time to know where all your streams of revenue are coming from. And so that's, to me, what the entertainment attorney in in this modern age is doing. I think uh, my colleagues prior to were really focused on when the deal hit the table, that's when we stepped in and said, okay, let's get to negotiating. Well, now in a world of indie, it's still that. When the deal hits the table, especially that big deal that you get from Sony or you are about to do some type of negotiation to exclusively stream your music with Apple or something like that, then, yes, you definitely need an attorney. But in the beginning, I think prior to where we're now in this, you know, phase of indie where prior to you did hit us up until then, now you're hitting us up before then to say, okay, 
I'm doing these producer beats or I'm, yeah, I'm selling beats or I have this producer agreement or I want to sign this artist or I have some questions about my publishing because now that you all are doing it yourselves and the indies are doing it themselves, you have to now be more educated and using the attorney as a form of education and hiring them, putting them on retainer or saying, okay, I need assistance in this matter is really where entertainment attorneys, in my opinion, are coming in sooner rather than later in the deal like uh, some of my uh, older and more experienced colleagues, I would say. That's where they were coming in. Now we are at the beginning. We are grassrooting this with you all in the building of the career, especially if you're staying indie. Okay. So you guys are starting to get more involved from the very beginning of an artist's career. Um, but I guess the question that many artists would have was, okay, well, can I f- can I afford an uh, entertainment attorney? Um, how do you, is that affordable for an artist starting out? I think it is, but of course, as we all know, affordable is objective. Right. <laughs> so when you start talking about what is affordable, it becomes objective. I do believe now that payment structures have changed. Before you could say, okay, well, we'll work off a retainer. Um, a retainer basically is saying that you pay me a certain amount of money. Let's just say it's a thousand dollars. You give me a thousand dollars, and out of that thousand dollars, my hourly, let's say, if you got a fresh attorney straight out of law school, is one hundred and twenty-five dollars an hour. I'm not good with quick math, but let's just hypothetically say that covers six hours of work. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in that six hours of work, you can call the attorney and ask them any questions. They can help you with any formation issues that they, that you have. They can draft contracts on your behalf. They can talk to anybody that you need them to talk to, all for that $1,000. So that retainer structure is set up for that. So depending on what the experience of the attorney, all of these other factors, you may be able to say, okay, I can do that. Some attorneys also work on a flat fee basis. So sometimes, I mean, even I'll get clients that say, well, I just need to have drafted a producer agreement. And we can do that on a flat fee, which for a lot of my any clients and clients looking to have something done but don't want to put you on a retainer, that works for them as well. And so, once again, in this um, phase of really hardcore indie music and artists really doing it themselves, we as attorneys have to change the structure up a little bit to say, okay, how do we service artists now? And in doing that, it is giving the option to say, okay, this particular service may be better served on a flat fee. I can do, do, you know, I can draft that agreement for you for 500 bucks versus something that's more long-term when you start talking about a retainer. It's more of a long-term relationship. It is, you know, we are going to do this in a, long-term setting where I'm going to need your services just moving forward as I do all the various things. So I want to make sure you're at my um, disposal or back in, I didn't say back in call, but you are there when I need you versus if it's one thing that you need me to do, I'm going to do that one thing and then call me when you need me again. Right. And so it just honestly, when you need an entertainment attorney, it just honestly depends on where you are in your career in a sense but also what you're trying to do. Don't ever think it's too far-fetched to get one. It is just really determining what it is you need to do. And there are attorneys out there, especially your younger, hungrier attorneys, that are saying, okay, let's work with the structure that you have in place. Let's sit down. Let's do a consultation. Let me see where you are. 
and let's plot out what it is that you actually need. And then going from there, saying, okay, right now you probably only need a couple of agreements. Let's just say you're starting a record label. You only need, you know, a recording agreement, maybe a producer agreement. Let's get you a letter of direction on file, that kind of stuff. And then you can go off and do what you need to do and come back to me if you have some questions. Mm-hmm. So there are various ways to set up your relationship with your entertainment attorney. But I also would say out of all of it, start early, start building a relationship. Now, will it cost you something? Of course. But if you start building that relationship now, when that big deal hits the table, you're not scrambling trying to find somebody and in your gut thinking, am I going to trust this person with this agreement because now it's so precious. Well, had you built the relationship in the beginning, you already knew who your go-to was. You already knew the attorney you were going to reach out to. And so that's what, to me, with the indie artists, the, the connect and the disconnect sometimes can be. It's like, no, start building those relationships now. Yes, it's going to cost you some money, but it's better when that deal does hit, when that big deal that you've been waiting on hits. You've already either gone through a couple of attorneys that you don't like and you're with the one that you know you definitely want to negotiate your deal and you've built a relationship. You know, you hear all the time, build your team. Well, in building your team, the manager may not, may be taking their money off of the back side of things when the money comes in or whatever that structure is. The attorney doesn't necessarily work that way, but they can work around a budget if you have one. But you got to have one. you got to be transparent to say, okay, I don't have a million dollars, but I got, you know, 1200 What can you do with that? Right. So. Yeah, that that definitely makes sense. I mean, because you're going to have to have an attorney at some point. I mean, if you're building a serious career, it's going to grow. And, you know, the more you grow, the more exposed you are, whether it's because you're using samples in your music or because someone might be trying to rip you off on the other side of the world and you don't know. Like there are so many different situations that could arise as you grow in your career. And I can attest it's going to be hard to build a relationship with a lawyer when you only call them because you have a crisis. Right. And they've already got, (laughs) you know, they've got clients that they've got relationships with. And, you know, you need somebody to handle your case immediately. But they're like, I don't know you. And, you know, and so then it just becomes, all right, well, you're going to have to pay me for my time. And so it might be more expensive. It almost will definitely be more expensive for them to handle your crisis when you with you coming in as a new client with a crisis. Yes, definitely. Because it's the whole now to fill you out. This is an, it. Truly, is a relationship. The same relationship that you have with management, where you hear people say, "No, your manager becomes your left, your right arm." Is in some ways the same thing. If you're building relationships with these boutique firms, with smaller, um, att- with smaller attorney firms who can give you that one-on-one attention that you want, it's about building that relationship early, and so they know what your business structure is. They know what you're doing. All of that stuff plays into how they're able to better service you when their deal comes in because they are already familiar with it versus calling around now, which I've experienced where. Indie artists will be calling around basically shop price shopping attorneys and trying to figure out, and they have a deal in hand that they need to have back in three days. Mm. 
Well, now you're calling five or six attorney firms trying to figure out who's going to give you the best price or what the pricing structure looks like because you're not, you're not necessarily familiar with the retainers, the flat fees versus the back-end deals. What is that supposed to look like for you? So as you're calling and making these phone calls, you're also at the same time trying to get to know the attorney, and they're throwing numbers out at you, and nobody feels comfortable when you start doing that. So you're in this catch-22 thing of, well, why is it all about the money? Well, because you have this deal on the table right now, we need to talk about my payment structure first before we start talking about this deal versus you already have that built-in relationship. So when you call that attorney, you already know, okay, Stephanie is going to charge me on the backside just because there's money to be got. Or, no, she's probably going to charge me off of my retainer for this particular agreement. You already know it, and you can just continue to flow in your business versus now scrambling to find somebody asking for recommendations, it can be overwhelming. Right. Definitely. Well, I, I definitely, I think it's important for indie artists to just understand, and I guess we should give like a higher level overview of, you know, what, what aspects they should be looking out for. Cause a lot of indie artists aren't familiar with, copyrights and royalties and just everything that's due to them um, just by the merit of them creating uh, work. Um, so I've noticed, I found you through YouTube where you had some videos about music royalties and copyright registration. I want to see if we could talk or go through kind of from the beginning, uh, basically things that artists should be looking out for or uh, registering for to make sure they have the full protection that they're getting all the monies that they're entitled to get as artists. Okay. So protection wise, I would say you don't have to copyright your whole song, but but the stuff that you're actually going to put out there for your fans to listen to stream, consume and purchase, you definitely want to copyright that stuff at minimum. It's the EP, the album, whatever it is, that stuff definitely needs to be copywritten. Not every beat that you create, but at least the stuff that you are putting out there needs to be copywritten. Um, and that is for the protection of, of true ownership because that is what is exposed, basically exposed to the world for them to infringe upon. So it at minimum needs to be copywritten. The other reason that you copyright something is because when people are looking for ownership, who owns what, the first place that they go is the copyright office. They may go and try to search the PROs, or they may go to Harry Fox, but the first line of the sentence, the first place that says, okay, well, if it's not at the copyright office, then it may not be there, is the copyright office. Now, I will say, Kathy, the copyright office is pretty backed up right now in the processing of applications, but as long as your application has been filed in an infringement situation, um, they have it on file, so if something was to happen, at least you know you filed it and you have a record that, okay, it just has not been completely processed. And so that's where your filing is going to come in at. In regards to royalty collection and making sure you're collecting all your royalties, of course, you know, you're going to sign up for one of your PRO, that's ASCAP BMI, maybe you got invited to CSAC. Um, you're going to, if you own the sound recording, you're going to sign up for sound exchange. They're going to collect your, uh, they're going to collect on digital platforms like the Pandora's of the world. I think they're not, I think 
if I'm correct, they are non and they're collecting non interactive royalties for um only those sound recording. Right. And so outside of that, you're going to also then if you are running your own publishing, you need some type of publishing administration. So for instance, um if you have done your digital distribution of your album through TuneCore, for instance. Well, TuneCore has a publishing branch that says if you did your distribution through us, we can also do your publishing administration. Mm-hmm. You want that because if you have written songs on this album that you put out, that is where you're going to get your mechanical royalties and the streaming money that people are always saying, well, I can get any money for my streaming. Or well, is it properly set up for you to be able to collect that money? And right. so you want to go on there and you want to say, okay, I need to make sure that I'm getting my streaming money from the mechanicals that these streaming companies are paying out. Um, a part of what the big deal with the Music Modernization Act was that these streaming companies were filing notices of intent with a copyright office because they could not find um, a lot of the indie artist music that they were streaming because the artists had not essentially copyrighted their music. So they go to the copyright office, say, oh, okay, well, we can't find them, but here's our notice of intent to say we're going to use their stuff. If y'all find them, holler at us, and we'll pay you. Of right. course, they just kept streaming and they weren't paying out. But that partially in part was because as owners of this music, you're not doing your job when you have not gone in and made sure you have some type of administration going on. You can't keep the whole bag of money. Let me say, you can't keep the whole bag of money if you know how to get the, get all of the, all of the money. But these administrators who may be taking 10% off the top, the 10% is worth it if they're going to collect the other $90 for you. Right. And so, and that having some type of administration in place where they're going to collect the um, mechanical royalties from the digital platforms, like, um, for instance, Spotify or um, Apple Music, places like that. Like I said, you're trying to you're you're worried about the um, digital radio the digital radio platforms, those places. So you need some type of publishing administration in place that is going to say, okay, we'll collect from all those other places. I think another um, good one is a song trust. They do that as well. So just looking into one of those platforms for administration beyond your performance royalties because you have to have to remember at BMI they're only collecting performance royalties. They are not collecting mechanical royalties and those royalties are also being paid out by streaming services. Um, so you just have to know, and I think with any artist, one of my biggest things what I tell my students is knowing the type of royalties you are supposed to have or that are that come from a song and then knowing where they're coming from, because that is where your streams of revenue are coming from. There are many streams of revenue from one song, but you have to know what they are, and you have to know which entity should be paying those out. Right. So I hope I answered that. Definitely. And I think another great thing about Song Trust is, you know, they deal in neighboring rights, because a lot of these organizations that we're familiar with are only collecting royalties when your music is used or streamed in in the United States. But companies like Song Trust are collecting your royalties internationally as well. And that's why it is so important to sign up for a publishing administrator as opposed to just putting your music up on your ASCAP site or or registering with BMI or CSAC, whichever you may be affiliated with. 
Um, and can we and note right there that registering with ASCAP and BMI is not copyright registration? I get that all the time. And just for this purpose, that registering with ASCAP and BMI is not copyright registration. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, no. All ASCAP is doing is assigning a work uh, number. Basically, ASCAP is uh, they're collecting they get blanket fees from all these different places that are using music, whether it's a TV station, whether it's your local food lion, whatever it might be. And all these places have to pay a fee to them in order to be playing music in their stores. Like you hear music in an elevator, all of those, all of that generates a royalty. And instead of them trying to track you down because they paid your song or they played your song, they're going to track down the bigger agency that handles it. So they pay them. And ASCAP has to have a way to keep up with all that. So all they're doing is literally just assigning a number to your song so they can say, all right, cool. This song is associated with this person and we'll pay them that little fee. But like like Stephanie said, that is definitely not copywriting. That's not going to protect you in the event of infringement because that's not where the the lawyers or the legal team is going to look to see if your your work was registered. No, they may look. I mean, that's a good place to look for publishing right to say okay who's the publisher sometimes you can go on there because it's quicker because everybody does go to ASCAP and BMI and register there first so sometimes if you're looking for a publisher of a particular song or something like that um, you can utilize them to do that but in the bigger scheme of things your best bet is to make sure you copyright because then they will provide no excuse for I can't find you Right. The copyright office is open, free to the public. You need free research, you know. There's no reason you can't find me versus having to go through all these secondary um, secondary resources that may turn out a result that may not. So you're not you're not benefiting yourself by not making sure that it's copyrighted outside of doing the registration with DCRO because they are working for you to collect your money. Right. Okay. And we've been talking about the Music Modernization Act a lot lately because it just got signed into law. Um, what are your thoughts on the bill, and how do you do? You feel like it's going to change things for the better? I have hope. Yes. Um, you know, I will, I'm excited to see what implementation looks like. So right now, I do have hope. I am on the side of that this is going to work and that we will see a change in. Um, how royalties are paid out to songwriters, because let's be clear, it's a songwriter's bill, it's not an artist. It's not a bill for artists who do not write. You know, that money is paid directly. Their money is paid to the record labels, and the record labels are responsible for paying their artists out for that streaming revenue, whereas really this act was geared towards the fact that songwriters felt like they were not getting a fair shake in the amount of money that was flowing through streaming, mm-hmm. and that the labels obviously were getting the bulk of the money, and um, they wanted to be ha- to have more negotiating power in being able to say how much of that, let's say that dollar, if the record label getting 50 cents on the dollar, and you still have to take into consideration the administration fees, so let's say that's 30 cents, how much money should they really be getting because you still need to split that the leftover between the, the publisher and the performance rights organization. And so songwriters really came together and said, look, we need to have more bargaining power. It shouldn't be the set, basically the set rate that's set by the law. We should be able to negotiate it ourselves. And so 
I'm excited to see what those negotiations start to look like and what the first rollout of that's going to be. Um, and I'm also excited to see what this collective is going to look like. You know, what is the, I think it's the, forgot what they call it, the music something collective that they're putting together, basically, that's going to go in, basically the structure like a PRO, but not a PRO, that's going to start to collect the monies from the streaming services and then find the songwriters that the money's supposed to go to and pay them out. Right. So I'm excited to see or interested to see what that's going to look like, how that's going to be structured. Say in my mind, I'm thinking of what it reads like it's going to be structured kind of like similar to ASCAP, BMI, but they'll be, mecha- they'll be collecting mechanicals in a sense versus uh, – your PROs who collect performing, uh, performance rights. So that's what I'm looking forward to. But right now I am positive that it's going to be for the better and not something that's just going to make life more confusing. Right. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, if for no other reason, it gives you a central place to make sure you're registered. And at this point, instead of all the streaming services having to have that burden of, oh, let's figure out where this person is. Now we put that off on this mechanical licensing collective. And so, I mean, it's worked well. We've seen how it worked, how it works with PROs so far. And so I I think it could be, it could work well for this as well. Right. I think it could work well. I've heard Nathan say, well, I mean, you know, people are only looking out for themselves, but at the end of the day, they, they're trying to solve a problem and that's a big problem. And so I have to be as a, part of the industry supportive of somebody coming up with some some form of resolution to the problem. And so in that, let's just see if it pans out. There will probably be some kinks. I'm not going to say it won't be, but something is better than nothing. So in that, to get all of the Senate and all of Congress and to get this bill passed and signed off by the president, that's a really big deal because a lot of times, many times, a lot of the um, – Subparts of the Music Modernization Act, they tried to pass before and it never got anywhere. The classic, the classics act, the, um, there was another, there's another big one that's also included now that they could never get passed. And so mm-hmm. it, all of it was incorporated and now all of it has been passed. So it really is a big deal. Right. So I have to stay positive that it's going to, turn out for the best for songwriters and it'll be another organization just like, you know, Sound Exchange and BNI ASCAP that's going to make it a little bit easier for artists. But in making it easier, I still want artists to empower themselves to know exactly where all these what these royalties are and where they're coming from. Because sometimes the organizations can handicap artists because all I got to do is sign up and they'll just send me a check and not understanding what that check is for and where it's coming from. (laughs) Right, right. And so just to kind of recap, we've talked about um, from the beginning, an artist needs to register with the copyright office. Um, They need to register with the performing rights organization. Uh, They need to make sure they're registered with sound exchange so they get their non-interactive mechanical royalties. And then they should also... Non-mechanicals, you're getting the um, royalties from the master recording, the sound recording being played on the non-anger active. So 
Town Exchange only collects money for owners of the masters. They don't collect money for for owners of they don't collect money for songwriters. And that's really different than the organization. So Town Exchange is collecting money for for the owners of the masters, so that's why they can collect money for the record labels, but they're also collecting money and giving some of that money to the artists who actually perform their vocals on that track. So if you are the person, as we know, and I also oftentimes tell my students, the word artist sometimes is used generically when you start talking about royalties, but you have to understand, is this a royalty that is really owed to the songwriter, or is this a royalty that's really owed to the artist? And the artist being somebody who never wrote a word on the track, but they just showed up and sang. Right. And so Sound Exchange is doing that. They are saying, okay, they represent the artist who just showed up and sang the song. And they're going to send that person a check. Now, if you were all of those people, that is why you're signing up for Sound Exchange, too, because that money is owed to you as well. And if you own your master, you're signing up for that as well because you want to make sure you're getting all of that money, too. Right. So Sound Exchange is going to help you get your sound recording royalties from non-interactive streams. And then it's also important to sign up for a publishing administrator, whether it's through CD Baby or TuneCore, because they both have publishing admin uh, services, or through like a third party like SongTrust. Um, is there anything that we're leaving out that artists, you feel like artists kind of overlook? Um, no, I'll say that is the to cover all your bases mm-hmm. in regards to money, no. Of course, start your own publishing company uh, and make sure your song, you know, your songs are owned by your publishing company. Just right. because you're doing administration through them doesn't mean that you don't have your own publishing entity if you're a songwriter. Right. So I would say to do that, but as far as your basic administration for royalties and stuff like that, no, I think that's that's pretty much that'll get you headed in the right direction. <laughs> Got you. Cool. Cool. So, um, as far as contracts and things like that are concerned, there's a book I bought a while back called the music business contract library. And it's got like these templates for all these different types of deals, whether it's like a work for hire agreement, um, or like even like a, a management agreement or a record deal. What are your thoughts on books like that? And do you have like a, a warning for artists when buying resources like that as opposed to reaching out to a lawyer? So when it comes to buying contract book resources, I am just weary of them because a contract is personal to every different, every single situation. So even when you call an attorney and you want a flat fee and you're like, well, I know they have a contract, like, they, they can just send me. Well, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't make sure I asked the right questions to see if really you need the contract tweaked in a way to make sure it is fitting your particular needs. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm so the issue with buying template contracts is you can buy them and they're fine because they give you a boilerplate structure, but... The reason you pay the attorney is to twerk that contract to make it work for you now. Because right now, it's a one-size-fits-all. And unless you are knowledgeable enough to know 
how to make it fit for you because it's just like a, a suit. You can buy the suit off the rack, but then you need to take it to the tailor and get it custom. Right. Unless you know how to make it custom, that is where you're going to run into issues. And so there's nothing necessarily wrong. Of course, I'm not a fan of them, but I know they exist. There's nothing wrong with using it as a resource, but you need to learn how to make it custom. And if right. you can do that, cool. But if not, that's where the attorney comes in. Because I'm not going to send you a boilerplate agreement. I'm going to make sure we sat down in a consultation and I've asked the right questions to you and I got enough information and talked to you enough to know, okay, this is really how this deal is structured. So even if I take that same template, I'm going to take that template and now make it custom to your particular needs. Mm-hmm. And that right there is where I have an issue because I see artists sending out stuff that they've Googled. And really, they just Googled it, they put their names in it, and then they sent it back out. Or they'll call me and they really want a document. They, I told somebody the other day, you want the, the attorney to certify a Google Doc and send it over to you and say, okay, it'll be 250 Well, I can't do that. That's just not in our nature to say, okay, yeah, I'll pull this document. It's real, it's real good. It'll get, it'll get the job done and allow you to use it. And I know that it may not fit your particular situation or your particular needs. So that's the issue with those those types of resources. They're good for, you know, pinpointing and making sure you understand the basics of what the agreement states, but getting down to the nitty-gritty of what you need, you need to make sure it's stating that. Right. Yeah, and I think I think that's the biggest thing uh, or the biggest value that an attorney provides is the guidance. And, you know, your attorney, your attorney is your advocate, just like your manager would be. So just like you expect your manager to help you negotiate the best deal possible with a label or with a booking agent or whoever it might be, your attorney is going to look over that agreement and say, hey, look, there's a clause in here that is not going to work as well for you as you might want. Right. And you're not going to get that just from, you know, putting or, you know, downloading something online or getting something out of a book and just sending it over. And the other thing is a lot of that stuff is hard to read. So, so, you know, a lot of it, the average person is not going to catch anyway. It's just like, okay, I don't know what this is talking about, but I just I'm just going to look for the numbers. Okay, this number looks good. Cool. Yeah. And most people are just worried about the dollar, not worried about the long term. Uh, ownership, how this contract actually is going to operate in real life. And that's the other thing you want to make. The attorney is thinking about how it's going to become tangible when it's actually operating and you're in the agreement, not just what it says on paper, but like, okay, so what happens when the check is dropped? And that's in their head what they're imagining as they are drafting the agreement and making sure it's custom tailored to fit all of your particular needs. And so that to me is where, like I said, that's where we come in at to bring that level of expertise because your manager, great resource, and in a sense for attorneys, the first line of defense to kind of get the deal points out there to come back to the attorney and say, okay, these are the major deal points that, you know, my client was concerned about that I went ahead and took care of. Now you massage them and put them into the agreement. And that's how the manager and the attorney work and say, okay, cool, that works for us. Right. And getting that together, but it transitions and not 
also having the manager do that as well. That's where you have to be able, once again, there are levels to this, and every team play, every team member has their role. And so your manager has done that, but the attorney comes in and massages those important deal points that were top of your list. Your manager has done that already, so now I'm just going back in and massaging and then coming back and saying, okay, guys, this may not work like you all think it's supposed to work. It needs to work like this. Or it could be better structured like this if you do this. Right. So that's when the attorney is coming in and putting their expertise to use, basically. Right. Got you. Cool. So I wanted to ask you, because um, something I saw that came up earlier this week was Kanye West. I don't know if you saw this, but he was upset saying that he tried to buy back his music publishing from Sony ATV and they wouldn't let him even though they told him a price and he had the money available. And, you know, I was, so I was talking to the people in my private community in the indie club this morning. And I was like, well, I mean, they're well within their rights based on their publishing agreement. And so could we talk about the, the dangers and I shouldn't say dangers, like a publishing deal is not a bad thing inherently, but can we talk about some of the pros and cons of signing some of these major deals and how that, the deal that you sign today might affect you tomorrow? Sure. Um, okay, so actually one of my students brought this up to me, and I have not yet to look and see what all the deal points were. So I heard of it, but I'm not too familiar with what it was. But I did hear he showed up with the cash, and they did not basically give him his music back. And that clearly is something that most likely has to do with something in his agreement. He signed the rights away, and whatever the reversion of those rights back looks like is what they're holding on to to say, no, we're not giving it back because of some particular agreement that now he's going to get a lawyer to fight. Right. Because it's not about the cash. Because I, when it was brought up to me, I thought, you know, well, whatever number they threw out for cash purposes, they had to know he was going to come up with it. That man is Kanye. From an artist's perspective, he's not broke. Right. He's passionate enough to come up with the cash. So that's why I kind of felt like, well, no, this isn't a cash issue. This is a contract issue. Uh huh. So what's the what's the deal? What's the situation? It has to be deal. It has to be in a contract. But in the overall sense of signing, what these publishing deals look like? Yes, when you sign these publishing deals, publishing is about ownership rights. And who's going to own the music at the end of the day? And yes, as an indie artist, you may barter your rights because that's the power that you have. A part of them wanting to sign you is that they feel like this song could potentially do something or you're a great songwriter and the songs that you put out can do something. And so they want to own an interest in your music. Now, them owning an interest in the music means they're also on their end by you giving up interest. They're going to help export the music that you have now um, made them a partner in, let's say, if you have a co-publishing deal. They're going to go about and they're going to exploit it. Maybe you don't have a co-publishing deal, though, and you have a straight publishing agreement where you signed away 100% of your copyrights and y'all are splitting the income. If you have a traditional deal, that's what that looks like. Well, in that, you don't own the copyrights to any of the stuff that you put out under that agreement. All the copyright ownership goes to them. Right. You all are just splitting the income. Right. The issue with that is, is for instance, you sign with a major or somebody who has said, well, 
once this agreement is over, you can walk away and go find a new publishing deal that will cover all the new music you make with this other publisher, but we keep the copyrights for that stuff over here with us. You don't get to take the copyright and move it over and transfer it over to your new publishing company. We keep that stuff. And so you hear people say, you know, a lot of people own a lot of portions of my music because that's what happens. As they've matriculated in their career, they may have gone from having a traditional deal where they signed away all of their copyrights to having a co-publishing deal where, let's just say, Sony owned a portion and they started their own publishing company. So some of they, their publishing company owns a portion. They're doing straight administration where now they own all their copyrights. They're just paying somebody to manage and do the paperwork. And so... It's not uncommon that that happens because it's just a part of growing up in the business. And as you become a better artist, you no longer need, like, the services of exploitation where they're pitching your stuff to Target for a commercial. Because at this point, Target is coming to you asking to use your stuff. Mm -hmm. So it happens. But just understanding what that looks like. And if you're giving away 100%, you want to make sure that this 100% that you're giving away, let's say, isn't for five years. It's only for two years' worth of music. Right. Or it's not for ten songs. It's only for four songs. Because those agreements can get really picky in what a song looks like, honestly. Right. So that's what you want to be aware of when signing these agreements because, I'm not ever going to say that publishing agreements with a major is a bad thing because sometimes you got to get your foot in the door and you have to be business-minded enough to negotiate properly. But knowing what you're signing and saying, okay, I'm not going to give away five years' worth of music. I'm only going to give away two years' worth of music, and then I go back in and renegotiate. Right, exactly. I mean, there are plenty of artists that have publishing deals, and it's worked out very well for them. Uh, T-Pain is one. Uh, there's an artist from my hometown who signed a publishing deal with Warner Chapel and through the deal ended up uh, writing basically all of Dr. Dre's last album. And so it's like those things can work for you and you can help they can help you to, you know, reach markets or reach people in the industry that you would not have had access to by yourself. But like you said, it's about, you know, it's about the, the long term, you know. When do the when do the rights revert back over to you? Um, and you know you know researching who you're dealing with, and is this somebody you would like to have a relationship with? You know for years and years to come, because you can be well taken care of. It's not like publishing deals aren't some evil thing. Everyone in the industry is not out to get you. You know they work well when you're happy and when you're well taken care of. So there's definitely an advantage. There are definitely advantages to signing these agreements, whether it's a record deal or anything like that. But like you said, it's about knowing what you're getting into ahead of time. Oh, yes. I'm glad you said there's an advantage to signing these deals because there's only but, in my opinion, so far you're going to go because this business is based off connections and networking and things of that nature. And so sometimes it's worth doing just to get your foot in the door for the exposure. You're not necessarily paying we're not necessarily giving it up because they just want the money, but the benefits of you being able to walk into rooms that you may not have ever had access to had you not signed that deal and meet these people and make these connections is what you want. They have A&R when you sign up with these publishing companies. They have A&R people who are working 
to say, okay, I know that there's a new Kanye album coming out. Let me see to get you in the room with a producer who's going to produce the next Kanye album so you can write with them. They're making those sort of relationships happen behind closed doors because you are signed to their company. And they want you to make money because if you make money, they make money. If you write a hit song, they make money off that hit song. Right. It is just leveraging how long that relationship is going to work so that you can make sure that you're not stagnant and stuck in a deal for a very long time or for a certain amount of songs that you have yet to deliver. And that the next time it's time to renegotiate, you have some more negotiating power. Say, okay, yeah, no, I don't want to have to deliver 10 songs. I only want to deliver five. And my co-publishing is now not going to be 50-50. It's going to be 80-20. Those Mm -hmm. sort of things that come about. But just knowing how to work it, and this is once again goes back to knowing and really learning the business. The artists that you look up to, they know the business. Right. And so um, that's a perfect segue point. What resources would you point artists to to learn the business? Good question. The, I mean, of course, the the Bible of it all is all you need to know about the music business by Donald Passman. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of that, though, I would say there's a book of the 11, you know, the 11 contracts every artist needs to know. I think that was a good one. I'm teaching out of that next semester. Um, And then there's a book by a set, I call them, we call them the set of twins. And I wish, it's a black and red book, and I cannot tell you the name of it. I think it's Music, Money. Business is by these two guys in the front as we're talking to Google it. But yes, music, money, and success. That's the name of the book. Those are probably my top three resources outside of, I don't think, just being abreast of digital. So, digital music, they put out, I think it's digitalmusic.com. They put out articles all the time about what's going on on the digital side of music and things to stay up to date. Of course, I look at Billboard a lot um, from on, for online resource purposes to say, okay, what's going on? What's new? Hollywood Reporter will report on new stuff that's going on in the business. That's where I keep up primarily a lot of my news. Okay, cool. And I will link to all of those resources in the show notes for today's episode. Um, and now before we go, I want to just ask you, you know, personally, because it looks like you're, you're new to the entertainment law, um, relatively new, right? Because we talk to a lot of lawyers and they're like old white men that have been doing this since like, the <laughs> 60s, right? right? And But I see that you're active on social media, you're active on YouTube, and you're also actively in the classroom teaching the next generation of artists. How would you like the industry to be changed by your presence when it's all said and done? I would like to see it be more open to women of color practicing entertainment law and doing it outside of the parameters of New York and California, places like that. Um, I like to see that it becomes 
more accepted that you can work anywhere and the deals don't have to be done by an old Jewish white guy. Mm. And that's the stereotype, I think, in me being on social media and being honestly a part. I just, I guess I feel like I'll be a part of the culture and a part of generation to say that we are also working professionals. It is not that you have to go to, when that deal hits the table, you don't have to go find an old Jewish white man because you just know somebody said that he's going to make the deal happen for you, like he's the one. No, there are tons of us out here that look just like you that can get the deal done as well and that are willing to grow with you, kind of like as we said earlier, and that wants to grow with you. But, of course, there's that there's an investment, big or small, there is an investment, but that are willing to say, okay, let's see what you can do. What is your budget? Just like, you know, you have a marketing budget for the project, what's the budget for the attorney? And let's work within that budget because the industry is changing and it's changed for us as well. And as these people are leaving and new blood is flowing in, who are your resources? And wanting to bring up a generation of, Honestly, artists that are educated, I don't, honestly like working with artists that can have a conversation with me about their royalties and about what's going on because it makes it a lot easier as we're negotiating and going through deals. But I'm also a teacher, so it's not a problem for me to explain it, but just knowing that. So to answer your question, I want to see a new crop of lawyers that are out here working hand in hand with the with these artists that and they feel safe that the attorney knows what they're doing. It doesn't have to be an old white guy that's doing it for them. It can be somebody that is wearing George just like they are, but they can get the job done. So I hope to see that that's expanded and that one day, you know, we end up in Billboard magazine as this as, you know, top attorneys and that it's not just New York attorneys and California attorneys that are out here putting the practice on the map, but it's attorneys from other places because music is being made in Idaho just like it's being made in California. It's being made here in Houston and in Waco just like it's being made in Atlanta. Right. But for some reason, those places and those artists, too, they're not getting the shine that they're getting in. Neither are the attorneys that are helping them. And so really expanding it to say, Everybody is out here on their grind, and you don't have to feel like you've got to move to California to make it happen. Now the business right. is there, but so is a flight. So you can catch a flight out there and handle your business and go back home. Right. Right. That's what's up. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us, educate our audience on the different types of royalties and places to register. Um, before you go, can you just shout out um, basically your contact information for people who may want to work with you or, you know, watch out for your content in the future? Uh, cool. Yes. Uh, my office number is 713-955-8682. I can be found on social media. Probably the biggest platform is Instagram. It is the entertainment attorney on Instagram and then Facebook and Twitter. It's the Haylog group. Okay, cool. Well, I will link to all of those in our show notes as well. And again, I'm so grateful for the time we've been able to speak with each other and I hope we stay connected. 
Oh, good. I appreciate your meal. Oh, no problem. And that's going to do it for our interview with Stephanie Hay. Now, if you want to stay connected with Stephanie, of course, follow her on Instagram at The Entertainment Attorney. I hope you guys understand now just how important it is to hire legal counsel, especially as you start making waves in the industry and as people start to offer you all sorts of deals. Like I said before, there are tons of scammers out there. You don't want to get caught up. So have someone look over those agreements, whether it's Stephanie, whether it's an attorney in your hometown or someone that you meet online. Just be cautious. Now, if you want to stay connected with us and follow more or get more tips from us, then you should join the Indie Club at kdmr.us slash Indie Club. Uh, you get free advice via our forums. You get an extra video from me every week. And you get to network with all sorts of artists, managers, and industry professionals that are in your field that have some of the same goals as you and can help you get further. Um, so certainly join that today. It's absolutely free. Outside of that, you can view all the resources we talked about today and past episodes at musicbusinessdreams.com. And I'll see you next week. Peace.